Welcome to Queer Longing, a podcast where we discuss and explore everything that we're longing for and living for in our queer community. I'm Olivia Taylor. And I'm Lucy Cecil. Oh, that was really weird. I was, gonna, I was, I was about to just go, welcome to Queer Longing again, like for some reason. <laughs> well, it's really nice that you want everyone to feel welcome. Yeah. And that is um, really important. Well, just really nice, Olivia. <laughs> yeah, you're just, just, just nice chick. But um, that is especially important this week because we are on, I think it's guest three i know of um of our, of our author special series so more about that um in the next couple of minutes but lucy how you doing are you all right yeah i'm all right you know it's quite warm in it it's quite close yeah it's a bit close a bit humid but i'm enjoying the fact that it means it's like getting to you know the summer we hope we hope it's here to stay mm-hmm. um yeah the main thing i've i've noticed about this though is that very boringly but i definitely need to get a summer weight duvet oh uh, yeah yeah because yeah. usually i just do like fold the duvet in half and then have just like a sheet mm. but you know i'm not always alone now so i've got to like think about that i guess she's not always alone everybody you've <laughs> you heard it here first now i'm not <laughs> okay okay <laughs> but yes yeah, so i'm like oh god but i'm like and i've always thought i needed someone like duvet but i'm bad at like investing in things like that adults need okay so, yeah. okay but i've decided look look guys i'm 32 now it's happened mm. maybe it's time to get someone like duvet yeah, I mean, that, that time comes for all of us, oh, I think. Oh, it does, doesn't it? The, for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> uh, how are you? Yes, I am. How are your two days? <laughs> I am fine. My duvet is, is, is all right, actually. I think it's... Um, it can it can bend to different different temperatures, but you know I am. Um, All right. Yeah, I know. Stop bragging. But um, as we were voice noting late late last night, my fan was in full floor. Full yes, floor. So I thought you were like out on a walk. I was like, where is she? Like, by some sort of... I thought you were, like, on a pier. At 11pm? <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's why I then went, no, this can't be true. No. Um, this much is not true. So, uh, yeah, no. Well, um, so let's um, stop talking about boring things like duvets and let's talk start talking about interesting things like relationships and breakups. Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, this week we're joined by... Well, I'm not even going to say. No. You'll find out in one second. <laughs> Rosie Wilby is an award-winning comedian, author, and podcaster who has appeared many times on BBC Radio 4 programmes, including Woman's Hour, Saturday Live, and Four Thought. Her first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, was long-listed for the Polari First Book Prize and followed a trilogy of solo shows investigating the psychology of love and relationships. Her new book, The Breakup Monologues, is based on her acclaimed podcast of the same name and is published globally by Bloomsbury. Rosie, a very warm welcome to Queer Longing. It's lovely to have you. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you. I know on a lovely sunny day in London, we can't say the same for Manchester, but what's new? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, I did grow up in the Northwest, so I I know what it's like up there sometimes. I grew up in a place called Ormskirk, which I always tell people is a bit near Liverpool and a bit like Liverpool if you take away everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the main thing I know about Ormskirk is that it's like on the way to when I go to the beach. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes it'll direct you through Ormskirk. So where's the beach? Uh, like Formby. Oh, yeah. Formby, yeah. Or the yeah. Other one. What's the other one that sounds like Formby? Crosby. Oh, right. That's so, right. Yeah, I was born in Crosby. My dad oh. loves to go for a walk on Formby Beach, actually. It's beautiful. And I remember I when, when I was a kid, they used to have like a nudist colony in Formby. Really? And so, uh, you know, I would be a young girl sort of walking around with my parents and like a naked man would pop up out of the sand dunes. <laughs> the choice of place to have like a nudist beach because it's not exactly like clement all the time no, <laughs> yeah, no. that is a choice but you know <laughs> yeah, fair enough yeah, yeah. Need- there we are so what was what was life like growing up in the northwest did you um did you leave when you were quite young and do you get a chance to come back 
yeah, I come and see my dad, but um, I, I wouldn't say I had the happiest kind of adolescence growing up in the Northwest because it was a really homophobic time and I dreamed of getting to London because at that time it felt like London was the only place was that where there was any kind of gay community. I mean, yes, there were a few bars in Liverpool and obviously Manchester as well, but it still felt like there wasn't much going on where you could explore any kind of queer lifestyle or a different alternative kind of lifestyle. Ormskirk sort of felt very conservative and traditional. So yeah, I couldn't wait to get to London really, but yeah, it's good to see now that there's just a wonderful cultural scene and queer scene in so many cities, well, all around the world, really, not just in this country. So yeah, it's it's good. I mean, obviously a lot of places still got a long way to go, but yeah, certainly when I was growing up, I thought London was, yeah, the only place you could maybe be authentically queer. Yeah, yeah. And could you talk to us, I'm really interested to know what the queer scene was like in the 90s in London. In the book you mentioned, and we'll get into <laughs> the book a little bit more, but just while I have it in my mind, you mentioned that um, it was so lovely to um, have a drink with someone above ground. And that's something that we <laughs> bemoan all the time, that we cannot go anywhere. We're not allowed anywhere above ground. Yeah. No, like, we must be subterranean. We must exist as mole people. Um, in the bunker. Yeah, absolutely. it's weird, isn't it? And of course, the book we're talking about is The Breakup Monologues, um, as which is mostly about, about breakups and love and how relationships work. Um, as, as you kind of quite rightly said, I've done a trilogy of shows investigating all that stuff. But I obviously bring my really queer slant to that and talk about relationships from the perspective of a woman who has primarily had relationships with other women. And it's amazing how when you read a lot of nonfiction about love and relationships, there's just a really heteronormative disclaimer right at the beginning, kind of saying, well, we'll mostly be talking about relationships between a man and a woman. And we'll assume that all other relationships work the same way which I don't agree with at all I think our relationships are really different and have a very different texture uh, because we bring our our experiences to them and and I do think you see very different relationship behavior patterns um, among lesbians and gay men and, and queer people in general and I think well there's so much that we can we can get onto I guess uh, but yeah totally with you on the lesbian bars and of course so many of them have closed down perhaps because they were all underground and nobody wanted to go and not look out of a window <laughs> I, think, I think there's I think there's something in that you know I would love to just have a little bit of air coming through the windows yeah. it makes me want to stay longer we do we do kind of like the like joke of it don't we but then also we are quite sad about it and it doesn't and maybe that is why we don't stay quite so long mm. you know when we're in when we're in the bunker etc not to give it its full name but, uh, <laughs> we all know we all know which we know which we're, we're talking to. about um, <laughs> but as yes. as we um get a little bit further into talking about um the breakup monologues we wanted to start the show in the same way and we always um discuss what we are living and longing for every week so we would like to um put you um on the on the spotlight and ask you what you are living and longing for this week oh well I I would say um living for um I'm a big tennis fan and it's a really exciting part of the tennis calendar at the moment because the French Open which is one of the main big four tournaments is just around the corner and then very soon after that Wimbledon and actually my girlfriend or fiance now we're going to be wives very soon (laughs) um she works in tennis she's a strength and conditioning coach for some of the top young tennis players so you know when I met her she was able to give me 
me all the backstage gossip about all the top players and and get me into Wimbledon and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I do love tennis and I have been following it. And we were lucky enough to have um, a brief holiday, my first time abroad in a long time, um, because, of course, pandemic and whatnot. And we've just been to Rome for a few days and there was a big tennis tournament going on there. And we had a day at the tennis there, which was the first tournament I've been to really outside of Wimbledon. It was super exciting and I got really into it. So, yeah, I'm really living for tennis, which I've loved ever since I was a teenager. And Martina Navratilova was, of course, the only out gay woman that I'd heard of or knew about. So I was really interested in this kind of this queer sport. Yeah, no, I mean, I cannot believe the main thing I've like taken from that is I cannot believe it's nearly Wimbledon time. (laughs) (laughs) like that part of the year that's mad and it's funny you should mention tennis because last night you know how you can sometimes um something will just pop into your head and then you find yourself down a google rabbit hole and I was doing that last night with um Enrique Iglesias and Anna Kornikova (laughs) (laughs) and you know they they date they're married married. yeah yes they are married I I know so much about Enrique apart from that yeah they've they've been they've been married for about 20 years or something. What? They met, Lucy, funnily enough, on the set of the music video for Escape, our favorite song. Our best song, our very best song. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually speaking of breakups, they did have a separation, but they, oh. they reconciled. Oh, they rekindled. Yeah, oh. I think in maybe 2013. Oh. I sound like a stalker, but this is literally what I was <laughs> last night. Um, so yeah, um, funny that you should mention tennis. Amazing. Oh, that, that is funny. I mean, she had a lot of men after her, didn't she? So yeah. 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 Well, yes, stunning. Um, so great living for. What are you longing for? Um, I think longing for another holiday, actually, because I, I kind of hate getting back after you've been away and you've just got hundreds of emails and just catching up with all that work and stuff. So I really loved being away because it had been the first time in a long, long time. And it's been a really hectic, quite grueling year promoting the book and, and you know, recording podcasts and, and all kinds of other work and writing articles and so on. So it's been a lot going on. And I was I was really delighted to get away. And so we will be going on our sort of proper honeymoon towards the end. Well, in December. So at the end of the year. Um, so I'm really kind of longing for that, I think. Where are you off to on your honeymoon? Well, it's a really exciting adventure, actually. I've I've probably not been, well, I was going to say I've not been so far afield, but that's not true because once a long time ago, I did go to Sydney, but um, we're going to Costa Rica. Wow, nice. Yeah, so a bit of an adventure. (laughs) Amazing, very jealous. That sounds great. Um, Olivia? On to you. What are you living along for this week? Um, I am living for um, the new season of The Wilds on Amazon Prime. Um, so I watched the first season of this last year and it's kind of a queer teen social experiment sort of dystopia. So anything that includes any of those words is an automatic yes from me. Um, and I think the second the second series is really sort of going to expand on the, on the quite sort of horrific angle of this sort of big social experiment that goes to wild extremes um and it has um 
quite a few queer storylines that run through it and it's very us you really yeah, need to I know I, I've, I've, I'm slacking on not watching that because it's so me yeah. um that it's almost wrong I'm like doing myself dirty by not watching it so yeah. I will I will get onto it I promise I and, promise <laughs> and my longing for is actually another watching one and it is that we are going to go and see Rebel Dykes on Monday which yeah. is a documentary oh, film yeah. and, and I've been meaning to watch this yeah. for ages and that it's actually playing at our local um, independent cinema which is called Home um in Manchester so we're gonna go and um watch that on Monday so I'm longing for that Lucy that's great some great culture there yeah how about you well I've got to say that I have seen Rebel Dice so I I know you'll have lots of fun I actually got the chance to do some comedy to introduce the film at an evening they were having in East London at the Stratford Picture House um a few months ago I'm trying to think whether it would have been whether it was LGBT history month it probably was it was a few months ago so it was one of those events and yeah super super fun film and I know some of the producers a little bit so yeah you're gonna really really enjoy that um so how about you uh so I am mine 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 is quite simple this past weekend I went to the wedding of two very good friends uh and I'm absolutely living still for it is propelling me through this week as I'm absolutely knackered from it but like just the memories of how stunning it was how beautiful, how much I cried, um, how beautiful everybody looked. It was so nice, so good. And it's that other thing I think like with me with weddings, they're never long enough. <laughs> I always want them to be longer. Like I've said, um, really? I, yeah. Like, especially if they're like, cl- like really close friends or people that you really love. Like, and um, I did the like playlist for the evening for the, for the event. Um, and I was like, do you know what? If I ever get married, I'm going to need like a full weekend festival because there's too many songs. <laughs> too many songs um so yeah I'm absolutely living for it it was so stunning and I thought also quite nice to um be living for something that is uh, the opposite of breakups <laughs> which is very nice um, but uh yeah that is what I'm living for and I am longing for uh so my uh job uh, next week we are finally launching the brand new LGBT plus center in Manchester which is now going to be known as the proud place um and i work for the proud trust and we are launching next week and i'm absolutely longing for it can't wait for us to be like open to the public it's been a long time coming brand new shiny building lots of fun events to launch the building and get everybody back into a nice stunning safe space so that is what i am longing for oh lovely i'm really looking forward to seeing the new space yeah so if you have a chance to go down oh, wow. to our place do go and see lucy and the rest of the team and you can have a nice afternoon you can all morning not yeah. not in a basement no there's 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 a there's a full wall of window wow <laughs> who do you think you are <laughs> above window money <laughs> above window <laughs> oh, above, above, ground. above ground above ground um right great that's so good love that lovely love lo- lots of lovely lovely livings and longings so yeah we're so pleased you've joined us to talk to us about the breakup monologues your newest book and it's your second book and it runs alongside your brilliant podcast of the same name and we just thought for the benefit of those who don't know could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to writing at this point in your life or when you know when when you wrote uh, your previous book as well 
Yeah, well, yes, I'm Rosie and I'm a comedian primarily. That's what I've been doing mostly for the past sort of 10 to 15 years. But I started writing these shows investigating the psychology of love and relationships, which I suppose started to become a bit more serious than pure stand-up shows. They started to ask probing questions about monogamy, how we have relationships, how we communicate in relationships, how queer relationships might deviate from the sort of normative path of relationships that we see promoted constantly in romantic films and in the songs and all of this kind of thing. So I really wanted to investigate my feelings of to some extent failure, because I think we, you know, if we have this high expectation set of what a relationship is supposed to look like, how long it is supposed to last. And I, like many queer women, have had lots of breakups and I've had lots of relationships in my life. And actually, once I started to unpack some of the statistics around this, I'm really not unusual among queer women. We do have actually quite a high divorce rate and high civil partnership dissolution rate before that. But perhaps we shouldn't feel too downhearted about that because um, we also often stay friends with exes. So I think we pioneered conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth. Um, so, so yeah, so I guess the book, um, really combines kind of humor, heartache and science to really look at how to maybe actually stay in a relationship at last, having learned from your past breakups and how to stay together and navigate this new world of ghosting and breadcrumbing and (laughs) all these weird new words we have for behaviors around dating that are facilitated by the apps and technology. And yeah, I think really the books, the two books were a natural progression on from my comedy shows, because I think Although I love comedy and I love making a room full of people laugh, there's something very intoxicating about that. It's also kind of gone. You know, once you go home, you're on the bus (laughs) after your gig. um, There's nothing tangible left. Even if you record bits and pieces on video or audio, um, it's not quite the same. You don't capture it in the same way. So I quite liked the idea of having a product, a book that sort of documented some of my feelings and thoughts and ideas and some funny experiences and stories and thoughts as well as some kind of deeper explorations of of emotions and how we process them so I think a book gives you a bit more room to do that and go through a whole range of emotions than maybe a stand-up show does and so both of them really came from that place of wanting to develop something a bit further a step further on than my my comedy shows yeah, and the, the book is really very funny and very personal, but it's also really rooted in um, sociology and anthropology. And uh, I just wondered when when did the more sort of scientific and data-driven um, side of you come into play? Because from someone who's come from a comedy background, have you always had this um, sort of affinity and interest in data and studies and, you know, how we, be- how we behave as, as humans and our, our biology? Has that always been um, interesting for you? Definitely. Um, 
I actually, if we sort of go back before comedy, um, yeah, I, I have an engineering degree, which is kind oh. of perhaps unexpected. And I was good at science at school. And well, I was kind of interested in science, but also it was it was a weird time where it was still very, very male um, in that kind of science and engineering world. So I sort of didn't enjoy it because I felt so lonely in that world. And it was just kind of nerdy men. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was sort of interested in how things work and, you know, the mathematics of of how the world works and, and the sort of laws around, yeah, physics and gravity and all of these kind of things. But then when you come to try and investigate what the laws and rules are around love and relationships, well, it's an unruly beast because we're complicated humans. And to some extent, we've sort of outgrown our, our own biologies, the sort of prim, primitive animal wiring of how we are how we are supposed to love and lust, <laughs> um, you know, is, is so primitive and animal and basic. It's only really designed to see us through to sort of seeing our offspring out into the world. And now as human beings, you know, medical science has evolved so much that we have this much, much longer lifespan. I mean, women now have a huge postmenopausal life, which in an evolutionary sense is, you know, pointless. But of course, yeah. women are actually having a wonderful time, you know, many of them leaving their husbands or becoming late blooming lesbians or going off on new adventures or finding a new career. Um, but it, yeah, it's really interesting how human beings have evolved and in some ways the very primitive way in which we fancy people and connect with people hasn't. <laughs> yeah, and, and and through all of this research that you've that you've done, do you feel like you've uncovered any universal truths when it comes to love and relationships? Or do you sort of feel that it's it's still this sort of expansive gray nuanced area or is, is there something that, that you feel okay I can really sort of hold on to this and accept this as you know um something that I've learned as part of this process yeah I think the the really interesting and to some extent comforting truths that I've learned about breakups are firstly that they're an opportunity for transformation transformation and growth and healing so the subtitle of the book is the unexpected joy of heartbreak <laughs> and basically you know often we do find that we're really compelled towards partners who aren't necessarily the right ones <laughs> for us and unhealthy relationships can become incredibly addictive because there's something in us that wants to somehow fix the person or fix the relationship or fix ourselves and yeah sometimes it's just never going to work and even though we must know that at some level and all our friends are telling us you know just break up it's not working um we we just kind of really want to try and try and try and then when it doesn't it feels so very devastating because somehow it's a narrative about us having having failed but i think the more we have breakups, we start to learn and we start to be better at making choices about who we do want to be with and who we want to be in a relationship as well. So I think it's actually really comforting that breakups, I think, are a good thing. Um, it's like um, I talk right at the end of the book about kintsugi, the Japanese art of fixing pottery with that sort of gold lacquer paint. So you can actually yeah, yeah. see the repairs, the joins really, really visibly. And the repair is something to be celebrated because if you've had a breakage and fixed 
healed yourself afterwards, then you've probably really grown and learned something from it. So you're actually a person with more value, you know, more gold dust than, than somebody who's never been through that experience and hasn't had that growth and learning and healing. And also the other thing I found really interesting which I, for me, sort of helped me understand the process of mourning a breakup is that it's um, a real parallel to withdrawing from a drug. It's almost the same kind of process because we are addicted to our partners. They do release these opiates in our brains, the, these real drugs. So, yeah, I think that can go some way towards explaining just how completely lost and all at sea we feel when we've been dumped yeah it's it's so true and it's obviously um as we've discussed this book explores um relationships from a sort of scientific back background but also from an incredibly personal one so thinking about the writing process and um you know you include lots of detail about your own relationships friends people that you know on the comedy circuit um so other people's stories as well as your own um did you have to think carefully about what you wanted to include and what you wanted to leave out? And how did you go about that? And also was this sense of collaboration between you and other people about their sort of shared experience of relationship relationships, something that you wanted to include from the outset? Did it always, in your mind, was this book always going to be um, in part a collaboration? Yeah, I mean, it was always going to draw some material from the podcast because it shares the title with the podcast. So I always wanted to use some of my very favorite stories from the podcast and, and stories about breakups that people had shared and obviously, you know, checked with them that they were happy for them to appear in the book form as well as on the podcast. Um, I think what I hadn't realized quite so much was how much girlfriend, as she's called in the book, my partner, was going to be in it as well and how much it was ultimately going to be a, um, a book about staying in a relationship and staying together really as much as it is about breakups and right at the beginning I mean it was interesting you spoke about a wedding sort of being the opposite of breaking up but in some ways I talk about these two things being really intertwined and only being a flick of a switch apart because I have so many relationship moments where I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm so pissed off. I'm going to, I'm going to leave this person. And it's just something happens to sort of make you commit and make you stay and make you feel like actually this is worth staying. You know, I feel connected enough and, and deeply in love and with this person enough and we've built up enough of a sense of family and loyalty together and history that I do want to stay I do want to give this a go um but you know even with my my wonderful fiance who I'm marrying next month you know we there was one argument we had where I thought I'm I'm leaving but then you know I changed my mind because I thought no this is you know this is worth staying for and communicating about and salt resolving and, and working out um so you know I think these two things can be quite linked um and it may there may be all kinds of factors about what makes us stay or go and it might be about where we are at in our own life stages too yeah absolutely um I definitely ag agree um when I said at the beginning that they were like opposite, I was like, oh, I, mean, I was thinking about, and I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that because you you do make some good points about that, like, and how they are, they are super close and how, you know, there's nothing like 
the growth you get after coming through something difficult with a partner and not leaving and staying and like working and then making yourself stronger. So definitely agree with that. So we were wondering and hoping that you would give us a little bit of a reading from the breakup monologues to give uh, the audience a feel for what they can get from the book. Yes, no problem. I'm going to do a little extract from the prologue. um, And this is where we first meet Girlfriend. We're driving to a festival in Girlfriend's midlife crisis car, an electric blue BMW convertible. Although the way she drives makes me wonder if you can still describe it as a midlife crisis if it ends up killing us. That would be an end of life crisis and quite a crisis at that. Never mind. The sun is shining. Our life is good. We have a fancy loft conversion. We go on ski holidays. We Google things like, can dog eat monge too? After two decades of scratching out a creative existence from gig to gig, first as a wistful indie songwriter and then as a willfully grassrootsy comedian, I now get to live like a wanker because my libido went all aspirational on me and drew me to a partner with an actual job. (laughs) However... (laughs) Three months shy of our three-year anniversary, shit has got real. Girlfriend and I have reached a refreshing level of frankness about the fact that our mutual desire has waned. We have teetered and toppled over the parapet of honeymoon bliss and fallen to the ground below, stirred from the anaesthetizing effects of the sexy brain chemicals that have propelled us along thus far with relative ease. Suddenly, we're acutely aware of the careers and friends that we have neglected during the happy haze. We have reached the stage where being in a relationship with a fellow human has become a massive pain in the arse. (laughs) Even though it's a largely excellent relationship that neither of us intends to leave. Repeat, we're not going to break up. Not for the foreseeable, not us. In fact, it's the first time I've reached this point and not been planning a daring dramatic escape, counting up the significant partners whom I probably would have married if it had been legally available to me all along. I'm now onto my fifth wife. That puts me on a multi-marriage par with Joan Collins already at the age of 48. She was 68 when she married her final husband. If I was going to continue to be a slave to serial monogamy, and <laughs> if you're reading this, darling girlfriend, of course I'm not. <laughs> I would have ample time to overtake her and catch up with Liz Taylor and her seven husbands, one of whom she married twice. But I'm done with twisting. I think I'd like to stick. I found a funny, sexy, generous partner, even if she does have a ridiculous knobby car. Surely if I left this one, I'd be breaking up with love altogether. It would be my end game. And it's from this position of at least wanting to stay, of accepting the maddening claustrophobia of companionship, that I want to investigate why breakups continue to compel me so much. Perhaps it's because breakups facilitate and maybe even necessitate transformation. In the wake of a separation, our peers allow us to reinvent ourselves. The rest of the time, they like us to stay fixed so that they can move around and ahead of us. But heartbreak is the golden ticket that circumvents this bullshit. Renewed and reborn, standing at the edge of the echoing canyon of our former frustrations, we shout, this is who I am now. And we run and skip away from the parched carcasses of the old selves we've grown to hate. For me, it's been during these fleeting, liberating gaps of singledom that I've got shit done. I recorded and released an album. I launched a boutique music PR company. I started comedy. I wrote a book. Each time I harnessed any lingering feelings of anger, sadness and confusion and used them as energising forces for creativity, for moving forward with new insights into my own shortcomings and foibles. I wonder if it's possible to do that much learning and actively stay in a relationship. I hope so. 
It must be right, or else all long-term couples would be codependent, emotionally stunted weirdos. <laughs> oh, hang on. Oh, what a brilliant insight into um, into what to expect from the book. And I think that will um, whet everybody's appetites and get them very excited to um, delve into the breakup monologues. And I think all of those themes of, you know, um, reinvention, hesitancy, losing yourself in the beginning of a relationship, all of those things um, are covered in the book. And it's so interesting to sort of dive into that further. So you talk a lot in the book about all different types of breakup and in their many forms. And one of the chapters and sort of themes that ran through that really spoke to me was about the sort of breakup of friendships as opposed to the breakup of a romantic relationship. Um, And you talk sort of about the idea of exploring uh, that friendship love can sort of be perceived or could be perceived as like the purest kind of love. Um, Olivia and I talk about friendship love a lot. And I remember coming out of the sort of pand- well, coming out of the pandemic, I guess, coming out of the lockdowns. Um, and we had yeah. lots of conversations between ourselves and with our mates about how much we loved each other and oh. how we felt like actually maybe these are the strongest connections we've ever had and things like that. And so we wondered if we could talk a little bit more about friendship love um, and about why you wanted to make sure that that was included in the book as well. Definitely. I I felt that there are so many people who've been through a friendship breakout that feel they don't have permission to grieve and feel sad and do all the rituals that we go through when we are grieving and mourning a romantic relationship. We don't feel we've got the same space to take time off work or to lean on friends or to eat ice cream or to listen to sad songs and, and give ourselves some time off to to recover from a hurtful experience. So I thought it was really, really important. And it in some ways harks back to some of the ideas I explored in the first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, which was about how we have this sort of hierarchy where we inflate the value of romantic relationships above other types of relationships, which doesn't really seem to make sense because among so many people that I see, particularly among women, I see friendships actually being the most enduring relationships and longer lasting relationships. And sometimes romantic relationships are wonderful for a time, but then they might end. And so, you know, whereas friendships you can see going on for decades and decades and decades. So, you know, how can you sort of devalue that kind of love? So yeah, one of my, um, Radio 4 forethought pieces that I did was called a new currency of commitment because I wanted to kind of, you know, uh, explore this idea that we've kind of got our value system around love and relationships a bit wrong, really. And we need to to readjust that and, and sort of have more of an equality about how we view different types of connection. And I think as well on um, on friendships... You also talk about how in breakups you can lean on your, how you can lean on your friends and um, how friendships can be born out of um, queer relationships which have broken down. So I wondered what, in your opinion, through all of this research and sort of qualitative data that you have gathered, what, what needs to be in place for a platonic friendship post coupledom to flourish successfully what what needs to be what are the parameters for success there um i think honesty is 
is the key. I mean, it's the key to everything, isn't it? It's the key to all successful relationships, but particularly after a romantic relationship has broken down and you want to have a positive connection going forwards and a healthy connection going forwards, there has to be possibly quite brutal honesty about why the romantic relationship has ended. And let's face it, often it is because there is someone else involved um you know it's complicated isn't it human attraction and sometimes we do find ourselves falling in love with or falling in lust with or being attracted to other people and sometimes there are overlaps between relationships and i think the secrecy around these sort of overlaps is what can become incredibly toxic so i I talked a bit about in my book sort of finding out about an overlap many years later via facebook because someone's anniversary date didn't add up and it's like oh hang on um you know and i think finding that out a long time afterwards i mean yes to some extent you've healed and you've got over it and you sort of moved on but also it's really quite shocking um so i i do think that you need to have honesty and even if that means having a real break and and having a break from contact and seeing each other for a while it may be the best thing when you do sort of resume a friendship you've had that absolute honesty with one another yeah i always wonder about that because i I wonder, you know, in in past relationships and things, oh, has there been an overlap there? Or, um, you know, you sort of get over things and you move on, but then sometimes you wonder if that has happened. And actually, like you say, if you have healed from that, is it is it better to not is it better to never know these things um because you know actually if you know at the time is that going to hurt you more or you know is is honesty always the best policy um (laughs) is my is my question (laughs) well yeah you know i i think it probably is but of course we're all different and if you're somebody who says it's all about boundaries isn't it and communication of those boundaries um and for example people who have an open relationship or some kind of ethical non-monogamy setup they will let their partner their primary partner know their boundaries so if they say look you know i'm happy with you going off and you know having other partners but i don't want to know about it then that's something that you've laid out as part of your agreement about how you navigate having an open relationship. So maybe it would be the same kind of thing because to some extent, you know, I think it's quite a polyamorous thing when a relationship is ending and when we're starting to feel alive again and connect to ourselves again and start to feel attracted to other people. Um, It is a state of non-monogamy really because you're starting to have feelings for certainly for more than one person because it's quite quite a state of some kind of upheaval and things are really kicked around and you do feel quite sexy again but also sad and you're mourning the loss of that other person um so i do think there are so many parallels with non-monogamy and navigating jealousy and communication around boundaries so i think it's really doing that and taking a leaf out of out of the book of of non-monogamy really the best life lesson I think I ever learned was when I went and did comedy at a sex party and (laughs) which was an interesting evening you don't do a very long set by the way (laughs) (laughs) that's the only joke you need to tell yeah (laughs) um uh, yeah when I was um, and it's it's a little cabaret before the sex 
actually sort of gets going and the sex room has sort of been opened up. Um, but there were a load of rules that everyone had to sign up to when we entered the party, like a sense of accountability and respecting other people's boundaries, safe sex, um, you don't drink too much, be respectful of other people, um, you know, and be, be kind to other people. And also you are supposed to enter with another person, a pal, they call it, who's going to vouch for your behavior and take you home if you're being a weird lechy pest or rowdy or drunk or whatever so it's that kind of sense of accountability that i think we need to have really in our broader lives and in our relationships whether we're monogamous or not um and i do think i've learned a lot from sort of dipping my toes into the world of non-monogamy because by out of necessity you have to really communicate if you're going to open up your relationship or have multiple ethical relationships in some kind of way you have to communicate about what that means and how it's going to work for you and all of your partners and so I think very much the that period at the end of a relationship where you may be starting to think about beginning new connections new relationships is very much the same kind of thing yeah no definitely I I do agree that um the the honesty about boundaries or about you know if you're coming to that point in a relationship where you're thinking oh, maybe I do fancy other people or maybe this, or maybe I'm having thoughts about things outside of this particular relationship that if you're honest about it, then you may be able to salvage something from that relationship with that person and maybe begin something new or maybe it doesn't have to end, but it means at least you've been honest and the full closure has occurred for both of you. You've said everything. No one has to go away wondering. No one has to go away uh, knowing that they were thinking these things or they did something or and they never told the person. I always think it's best mm. say it with your chest, say everything, um, put it on the table and then see what happens. But what if your relationship is in a wind down sort of period, right? You both sort of know you're breaking up, but no one's really said it. And then Ooh. someone goes and has a cheeky snog with someone and then you break up the next week. Do you tell the <laughs> other person or do you just think to yourself... <laughs> actually that's just gonna hurt them what's the point I'll just keep that to myself so I I think it depends it's all subjective isn't it yeah it's all subjective yeah. every relationship is subjective <laughs> I still think it's better to say it because if even if you don't say it depending on who you are as a person you'll probably live with a bit of guilt about not having ever said it and I think that for everyone it's always best that everyone knows what happened and therefore everyone can go forward with like the full knowledge I, mean, I, 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 know, I know what you mean yeah. but and, and I also think I, that yeah. like I also think that like knowing um everything about um what has occurred within your relationship before it ends is like helps you move on helps right you way. move on in yeah. the right way and helps you to grow exactly how you need to so yeah. I think that it's always best to know everything <laughs> I, I think so I totally see where you're coming from though yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I'm actually it's, just 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 for the record I'm not projecting I haven't done this I'm just asking for a friend yeah. <laughs> I'm just um but I'm just, I'm just interested in in those sort of nuances and actually what is what's the kindest approach yeah I I think honesty because we live in a world where you know, it's almost impossible to keep anything private or secret anyway. So yeah. there's always going to be a friend who who saw you having that snog at a party who maybe 
says something or I don't know, maybe somebody took a, a photo that they posted on Twitter um, and you were in the background oh, snogging that person. You're yeah, snogging chickens coming back home to roost. <laughs> <laughs> snogging chicken. Oh my God, I hate that. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, God. Um, oh, God. Yeah. So, well, we wanted to talk a bit more about like the sort of unique quality we've sort of touched on it here, but of like queer breakups specifically, um, which do more often in our experience and I think in, in the statistical experience end with a friendship um, or end up or result in a friendship. Um, and we were wondering. Um, if you could comment on what, like, do you think that these friendships occupy a sort of separate space to those where romantic lines have never been crossed? So is it like a new kind of friendship where you are aware of each other in a romantic sense, but now you are platonic friends as it were, but there's this kind of nuance to your relationship and um, how can, you know, these, like that knowledge work, uh, how can you, maintain and, and go forward with a friendship when you have this previous knowledge of a romantic relationship with somebody. Yeah, I think it does occupy a different space and has a different texture to it. And sometimes the boundaries can be blurred and sometimes it can feel like you are continuing the relationship. I think with my first serious girlfriend who um, we broke up, we were going to break up at Anyway, I think the relationship was sort of fizzling out gradually, but we had a real laugh. We had some real fun times and we had a a wonderful friendship underpinning our connection. Um, And it was our first time of living with somebody. Uh, It was kind of exciting times. She sang in my band with me and I had an album out and was, that was when I was doing music before I turned to comedy. But then, um, there were two big catalysts which propelled us towards breaking up perhaps a bit sooner than we would have. And um, I sadly lost my mum to cancer. And then we also had um, a terrible house fire and lost most of our stuff. The flat where we were living um, kind of, well, not exactly burnt down, but, you know, it was like this hollow, dark cave and we were going in to try and salvage some of our some of our possessions, although there was some sort of dark humour in it because... Um, and the landlord did give us our deposit back, uh, which, was, <laughs> wow. which was handy. And also uh, some of our friends had looked down the backs of their wardrobes for like clothes to lend us and stuff because we didn't even have anything. And uh, one friend had uh, popped her brownie uniform in the bag of stuff she gave me. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure that will come in handy uh, <laughs> yeah. one way or another. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, Um But yeah, that was sort of a catalyst for us having to think about where we were going to live. And um, yeah, we ended up breaking up. But we, for a long time, a number of years, had a very close friendship. And I, I think our partners at the time sometimes perhaps felt boundaries were crossed even though I mean there was nothing ever physical going on between us anymore but we still had a a close emotional bond and I suppose we'd been through a traumatic experience of of losing our home and for me losing my mum and her supporting me through that as well and this sort of sudden jump into adulthood you know after these kind of fun times in our mid-20s so yeah that breakup that I suppose was kind of in some ways my hardest breakup. Um, 
because it was catalyzed by these other really difficult, challenging events. And I talk in the book about sort of untangling the different strands of grief and not knowing what I'm kind of sad about at any particular moment, because there were so many different things going on. Was it the relationship or was it my mum? You know, and I was also sad about losing stuff, but that seemed very trivial in comparison to losing a relationship or losing a person. So, yeah, I, th- I think um, that that relationship was tough. And so for that reason, I held on very tightly to that friendship for a long, long time. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily see that girlfriend very, that ex-girlfriend very, very much anymore. But we still stay in contact on Facebook and we're there for each other when something happens. You know, I've sort of been messaging her quite regularly recently because uh, her father died um, recently. So I think, you know, you just share a, an important history with somebody and just an understanding of what they're feeling, even if you haven't seen them for years. And when you do meet up again, you can slot back into an old form of communication and old jokes and old memories and um there's just a sort of shorthand you have with somebody that you've had that close connection with i i suppose but it doesn't always work like that there are some exes that you you can't stay friends with and things just deteriorated too much and perhaps there wasn't honesty or there wasn't maybe ultimately the the real friendship and connection underpinning things yeah and and when it comes to those friendships, especially um, queer ones, a conversation which I've um, picked up on in the last couple of years, especially in queer spaces, is about how romance and romantic elements weave their way into our platonic friendships and actually as something to be celebrated and something to be sort of included purposefully in a platonic space. And I wondered if you could um speak to that and how how you think that how you think that platonic friendships and romance can sort of work harmoniously yeah it's really interesting isn't it i i believe that platonic friendships are really really romantic and the process of sort of being attracted to somebody as a friend is very similar and you sort of fancy them in a more I don't know, cerebral, intellectual way. You think, I like them and I want to hang out with them and I'm going to try and, you know, get to hang out with them or I'm going to try and orchestrate that happening in the same way that you try to orchestrate having a date with somebody or getting them to sleep with you. <laughs> you know, you, you've you got something that you want to make happen because you like that person. And I think it's very similar. Whereas I know people, including my girlfriend, actually, who think that friendship has a very different quality and you don't have those same feelings of falling in love. So I, I know that there are different schools of thought on that, but I think it's very, very, very similar. And I think those boundaries can sometimes feel very blurred. But I do think... Yeah, I think in queer spaces, we do like to stay friends with exes and we do like to have important friendships and romantic friendships, perhaps because we have been marginalised and being discriminated against. So I think it's important to to have connection and to hold on to connection and to celebrate connection and to value those people we share history with even if it's up and down roller coaster complicated history um and sometimes we've been through some painful times and had to recover from arguments and trauma i think perhaps we make more effort as queer people to hold on to those connections because we've been through stuff together and and sort of 
you know, fought the <laughs> the hardships of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and um, and all of that together. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that like um, I've had this conversation with um, some straight people recently, more recently, stuff about like knowing people who are friends with their exes and stuff and, and then being like, well, I can't imagine that. Like, can't really can't imagine it. And I think that it sort of stems from the fact that we have um, such a sense of the importance of our community that any sort of crack in that we don't want to see. So if we can maintain the community and maintain like relationships within that, then like we will. Um, and I think that that's a really like, lovely thing so I think it's a very unique thing to the queer community I think it's really nice um when it works out obviously it can't always work out but and that's fine as well but sometimes it does and I think that's a really positive thing um to be able to like respect somebody enough to also be like yeah we had our our thing now you've got your new thing or whatever I hope you're you know happy etc and also I still want to be your friend and I still want us to all be part of this community because you know as much as it's growing it's still small yeah. and we need each other always I think it really just comes down to how much respect there was and is there yeah. at, at the end of the yeah. day you know how you can go forward with that person if you felt completely disrespected in the romantic relationship how could you possibly feel respected in a in a platonic one you know that's, definitely. that's my, that's my yeah. take oh, <laughs> oh yeah definitely but then yeah then you start to wonder well why was I in that relationship um yeah we all do different things at different times <laughs> for different reasons <laughs> we, do, we do this is true this is true it's funny actually um a friend of mine was watching um Eurovision and um with her husband and I think it was probably the first year he'd he'd properly watched it and she's really into it and, he, and she was saying you know Ben are you are you really enjoying this what do you think of Eurovision and his response was there are a lot of different ways to be a human aren't there which I think <laughs> is a very diplomatic uh, yeah. and useful response for a lot of situations that sums, that sums it up perfectly doesn't it yeah no. definitely <laughs> yeah. um right well what a perfect segue, because whilst we absolutely agree with Eurovision, mm, yes, we do. <laughs> there are some things that we're not quite so on board with. So it's time for... I don't agree with it. So Rosie, thank you for... Uh, we believe you have prepared an I don't agree with it this week for us. Could you please tell oh, us what yeah. you don't agree with? Yes. Um, well, I was going to say uh, kind of straight appropriation of queer ideas um which is perhaps i don't know but maybe along the lines of some of the things we've been talking about anyway but this idea that i've been looking at queer concepts around relationships and these really creative ideas that have originated in the queer community and being pioneered in the queer community things like friends as family or um living apart together or ethical non-monogamy which we've discussed a little bit and these are really things that queer people were doing long before straight people suddenly thought they were all a really good idea <laughs> um and so i i think what annoys me is when the heteronormative community somewhat cluelessly latch onto these ideas and go, oh, this is a really great idea we've had. And I'm thinking, but queer people have been doing this for ages. What are you talking about? Um, and, you know, it's fine if you maybe acknowledge the queer community, but sometimes there's just no awareness of, of the queer origins of some of these behaviours and ideas. Yeah, no, that's a great one. It's very, uh, 
it's the sort of prolific with a lot of things, isn't it? That uh, it's obviously absolutely fine. Please also have these ideas and, and uh, be free to do them. But it is that classic thing of forgetting the history of like the fact that they've existed for ages and that it was um, queer people who started them. That is a very good, I don't agree with it. Um, what do you not agree with, Olivia? So uh, <laughs> I don't agree with... <laughs> It's gonna be silly. <laughs> it's, it's it's a bit it's a bit silly, but I wonder if you both noticed this as something that um, has become part of our modern parlance. Oh, um, in the last couple of yeah. maybe years, but I feel like it's sort of picking up and picking up. And it's when people say a thousand percent or <laughs> one million percent or what? I how are we eight friends? Million percent. How are we fr- million percent? How are we friends? Because I say. A billion. <laughs> I say one bill. I say one bill. I go one bill. One bill. Percent. One bill percent all the time. Oh, no, because I'm, I'm 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 a proper like hyperbolist. I <laughs> and I always say like like it, literally. I always say like oh, I've only cried like sixteen thousand seven hundred twenty-two times today. Like I always put things up like by loads of numbers and stuff. And I say one bill percent all the time. Really? One bill percent. I definitely do. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll 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 forgive it for you, obviously. Oh, thank you so much. Um, because That's the, rom- the romantic, romantic friendship. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I just find that it's it's being really it's being really overused and oh. therefore and therefore diluted. And it's you know just people saying back and forth to each other, one thousand percent, one million percent, eight million percent, three thousand percent, and I find it irritating. <laughs> Where's it going to end? Inflation. Mine's a bit of a silly one, but you can't have anything over I love it. Capacity, so, um, I've not yeah. noticed that in, in lots of other people. Really? Yeah. I, I, it happens. It, it comes into play a lot in podcasts. Does it? Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard it. It, it makes me think... Um, yeah, because I'm quite pedantic about about stuff like that, and I think, well, that's not right. Um, but my dad sort of takes that to extreme levels. So if you say something like, "Oh, what are the chances?" he'll actually work out the probability. <laughs> oh, he'll say, "Oh, it's one in four He'll say it's one, one billion percent the chance. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> so what what is yours, Lucy? Is it that you don't agree with my? I don't agree with it. Uh, well, it is now. Um, <laughs> um, no, how matter. Yeah, mine is very trivial, but okay. uh, sometimes it has to be. Uh, I was right. This show came on last night um, on telly, uh, and it was called Britain's Best Takeaway. Yes, yes. Actually, Carrie, friend of the podcast, mm. um, Carrie Lyle, recommended um, that very show. Really? To us last night. It's yeah. not good. Is it not? <laughs> Well, we were talking. We were talking about them coming to visit from Scotland, and they said, funnily enough, at nine o'clock or whatever this right. show. I don't think they'd actually watch the show, but they were like excited to watch show about takeaways, right. which I can understand. Yeah, sure, love a takeaway more as much, if not more, than some people. Yeah, but like I, the problem with this program is what they've decided to try and do is they've decided to do both. Let's do like Bake Off elements of like people cooking different things, which people like to watch. Yeah, and then there's a let's send it to families but the f- thing the thing they've done with sending it to families is that they crossed it over with like a goggle box element okay so they've got like the families reacting to eating pizza or whatever and it just doesn't work it doesn't work and it's too long and it's very like silly but the, uh, and actually do you know what i my, my i don't agree but it could be like trying to make new shows and scraping the barrel for new shows but that's going to be an, an eternal one forever <laughs> but what, what it did make me think of because we were talking about pizza and having different things on a pizza menu. Was like, what I don't agree with is calzone. Calzone. <laughs> oh, you, you don't agree? No. Okay. Why do that? <laughs> I don't yeah. understand. Like, just do, just don't. 
Like I like to be able to see what's going on. And then it's always whenever you get a Caledonia, it's always like just a bit this of a big mess. mess of mush yeah. inside. Whereas I want to be able to be like, oof. And I love that bit on when you have a pizza because I love pizza. Mm. Like mm. getting a slice and being like, oh, that bite, that, that bite's got that bit in, or like that bite's got that bit. Yeah, in. it's you a know, bit of a pop yeah. up calzone, isn't it? Exactly. And I don't. I'm not. I'm not about that. So. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with Calzone and I definitely don't agree with badly formatted TV shows either. Yeah. I don't think I'm offended by them, but I totally see your point in that if mm. I was um, ordering pizza, I would never order a never, Calzone. Never going to get that, ever. No. No. How do you feel yeah. about pizza, Rosie? <laughs> And calzone. Yeah, well, you know, a pizza, a pizza, it's all out there. It's all honest, isn't it? You know, <laughs> as we've been talking about honesty and, yeah. and having it's everything out in the open. Out. Yes. Calzone is trying to sneak a little secret artichoke or something. <laughs> the, little did I want. know yeah. the perfect the perfect allegory for uh, for how relationships should be is the pizza calzone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's quite like an artichoke. I don't know oh, why I said love, that. Yeah. Love an artichoke. Love it's an artichoke. all right, isn't it? Found, found but, out. It, but imagine if it came up on you when you weren't expecting it. It might sort of get caught somewhere, mightn't yeah, it? Yeah, you could choke. It's choking has you it. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> Go home. The dad jokes are right <laughs> this evening. My dad energy is getting so much worse. I wonder if that's where it got its name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk about, um, I wanted to talk about in the book, um, you cite um, Dolly Alderton talking about having breakup energy. And I really wanted to make sure that we covered this because I think, you know, in all of the sort of negativity around breakups and the heartbreak and, you know, the inevitable sort of grieving processes, there is also this golden time where, mm-hmm. as you rightly say in the book, you kind of go back to yourself, you're just focusing on you. And it's this really sort of exciting period of time where the world is your um, oyster. And one of the things that normally comes out of this sort of breakup energy is the breakup haircut or as Lucy and I like to call it the rebrand in capital letters when you trademark trademark, when you you rebrand yourself and to launch the new 2.0 version of you 3.0 4.0 5.0 depends yeah it depends how yeah (laughs) um to to the world and so we wanted to ask you what is the most dramatic thing that you've done after a breakup or that you've heard of someone doing um that's sort of um in line with the (laughs) rebrand Um, oh gosh, yeah, I have I haven't um heard of any really amazing breakup haircuts. Um, although as you say, it's very much it is a thing, isn't it? And it harks back to all the ancient traditions of sort of cutting ties and cutting cords and and all of that kind of thing. Um but yeah, there's a, a really nice story from a, a friend of mine um called Helen Croydon, who appeared on the podcast. And she talked about how she'd been like this real party girl in heels, swigging her cocktails. And she, when she went through a breakup, she went off to sort of train in the mud and the rain, and she became a GB triathlete and got super, super fit. So she, you know, reinvented and transformed herself in in that way. But, and, and also, I mean, talking of dramatic breakup stories, there's one that a friend of mine told me um, that, that is briefly in the book where her boyfriend went out um, on, on his bike when the morning that she'd broken up with him and he was involved in a really serious car accident and he was in hospital in a coma and all his family were there at the hospital when she got there and they didn't know that she'd actually broken up with him. And when he woke up from the coma, he didn't know 
he didn't remember that she broke out with him either so they stayed together for a bit longer um but yeah i mean they did eventually break up but i i guess that's quite a dramatic thing is to um end up staying together with the person because they've uh, been in a coma <laughs> That is quite uh, drastic. Uh, yeah, probably not. The stats on that probably aren't very high. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no. I, I can see why you would probably stay with them for a little bit anyway, just to, you know, help them through that that bit of yes. recovery. Yes. Um, so speaking of, you know, breakups, moving forward and uh, transformation and growth, um, are you writing any other books? What is up? What is next from Rosie Wilby? What can we expect from you in the future? Um, well, I'm hoping to start developing another book. Um, on my Breakup Monologues podcast feed, there's a pilot that I recorded for a new podcast idea called Looking for My Sister, um, which people can hear. And I developed that with um, the support of a micro grant from this production company called Content is Queen. And yeah, so this was exploring kind of the idea of having siblings and not having siblings. I'm an only child, as far as I know. Um, uh, but I've always sort of felt like maybe I had a sister somehow I don't know, in another life, in another parallel universe. And so this this sense that sometimes we feel we had a sibling or have a sibling, but they're not here in this physical world, in this realm. So I'm quite interested in this idea. And I mean, there could be, you know, explanations for feeling like that because I found out that a ton of people actually had a twin that died in the womb. And certainly at the age I am, you know, our mothers probably didn't have particularly a lot of scans and checks. And so, you know, a lot of women probably could have lost lost a twin, had a bleed or something and not really thought anything of it or known about it. So, um, you know, now we're starting to understand more about that. And, you know, you can actually there are people who find that they have, you know, their DNA shows that they they would have had a twin. So, uh, yeah, really, really interesting and really only starting to sort of think about these ideas but you know thinking about kind of siblings and what it means in in a fun way and people's kind of fun and interesting stories as well as thinking more deeply about ideas of family and connection and and what it means how we feel and sort of different ways of feeling lonely or alone in the world and how we kind of reconcile those with our our feelings of family and connection and friendship yeah, that sounds super interesting. And, you know, like, like this book always relates back to the feeling of, you know, family and, and community. And we started at the beginning of the podcast um, talking about a wedding and we want to end talking about a wedding <laughs> because there's an important wedding coming up um, next month. And we wanted to know, are you all prepped for the big day? <laughs> I thought you were going to suddenly talk about some celebrity wedding or somebody else. <laughs> but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm getting married at the beginning of June. So exciting, exciting times. Um, and we're, we're keeping it quite small and, and low key with uh, family and stuff um, because weddings are really expensive and we were sort of, I guess, in a bit of a quandary about what to do exactly we were planning to have you know like a good large group of friends but then I think just realized we maybe wanted to keep it smaller and have it feel more special it's it's really confusing I think particularly when you're both women who've grown up 
not thinking you would ever get married, just thinking that was not not a thing. I mean, I wrote an article about how I gone on this journey from being a student in the 90s protesting and like doing same-sex wedding demos outside York Minster on Valentine's Day going oh love is not a crime and you know we kind of did this spoof wedding where this woman you know married her girlfriend in a sort of fake ceremony although I was still heartbroken because it was the woman that I had a bit of a crush on who was who was getting married so I was like oh I'll (laughs) never have her now (laughs) um But yeah, so it's really interesting going from this feeling of, you know, two people of the same sex getting married, being pure science fiction to being able to get married. But I think it also makes it feel a little bit surreal. And, you know, I know some of my straight female friends who, you know, from very early childhood were planning their wedding. So when it came to it, they knew exactly what they wanted to do, what they wanted to wear, who they wanted to be there how they wanted to be walked down the aisle or and I I, I don't know I sort of struggle with all of it because it all still feels like the scripts for it all are still so heteronormative I mean I kind of say you know I don't think any lesbian should be given away by a man I think she should be given away by a string of her ex-girlfriends because <laughs> that's more the more the sort of handover that's taking place Wow, I can imagine that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Rosie. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you um, join us on the podcast. Our final question to you is, where can people find you and um, what are you up to? Let people know um, about your future projects, your socials and anything that you're working on at the moment. Oh, fab. Well, I'm on Twitter at Rosie Wilby. I'm on Instagram at Breakup Monologues. And obviously the podcast is available on all your podcast places. That's called The Breakup Monologues. And the book is available from all good bookshops. And that is called The Breakup Monologues. It's out now in hardback and Kindle and audiobook narrated by me. And at some point early next year, the paperback will come out. But please, please do support the hardback because uh, the publisher still want to sell loads of hardbacks before they'll put the paperback out. Uh, it's, It's a hard old life being an author. So yeah, do please check that out. And I'll be on tour this summer um, recording live episodes of the podcast at various festivals, including Latitude and Essex Book Festival, to name a couple. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to think where else we're going to be, but there's quite a few dates um, throughout the rest of this year. So do keep your eyes peeled on the Breakup Monologues podcast because always in our show notes, I include some of the links to our next live shows. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And a huge, huge thank you once again um, for Rosie for joining us on this week's author special of Queer Longing. Such an insightful conversation. It was an absolute pleasure to have her on the podcast. So um, you can um, follow Rosie on Instagram, on Twitter, and also get involved in their podcast too, The Breakup Monologues. You know, if you cannot get enough of all of this breakup and relationship chat, which to be honest, I cannot. Yeah, it's an expansive field. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to discuss. And, you know, as we said when we chatted to Rosie, it's very subjective. There's lots going on. And I think it is a really interesting thing to talk about human relationships and how we all relate to each other and what we do about connections that we make. Yeah. And until we, you know, make further connections, whether that is oh. um, platonic love, romantic friendships. New duvets. New duvets. We will be loving you, leaving you, and longing for you until next time. Bye! We will be 
Oh, wait. Yeah, all right. We will be loving you, longing... What? <laughs> loving, leaving. We will be loving you, longing you, and... <laughs> what? Loving you, loving we will be... Leaving, what will we be? You, lo- leaving you. Loving you, leaving <laughs> Why did we make the worst possible intro and outro ever? Can you answer me that question? <laughs> Why did we do this? Because... <laughs> We don't know what we're doing. Okay. Oh.